Matthew 24. Now we're going to be looking at Matthew 25. We have, if you're new to Calvary, we have been going through the Gospel of Matthew. It's one of the things that we do, that we'll take a book of the Bible and we'll begin to study through the book. We've been going through the uh, Gospel of Matthew now for quite some time. And today we're going to be in chapter 25, but by way of reminder, we need to highlight a couple of things in uh, chapter 24 as we jump into our study of chapter 25. So as chapter 24 of Matthew began, Jesus said a couple of things uh, concerning uh, how the temple would ultimately be destroyed there in ancient Israel and uh, some things that would take place after that, which have perplexed the, the disciples. And so there on your outline, the disciples there in your outline, as Matthew 24 begins, it says, the disciples came to him privately, and I've underlined that privately, saying, tell us when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They've asked three questions. And then it goes on and it says, and Jesus answered. And I want you to underline that word answered, either on your outline or in your Bible, and said to them. And uh, so each week we have highlighted that in this section, chapters 24 and 25, that Jesus will give a private, you want to write that down, briefing to his disciples to answer their three questions. In private, what Jesus is going to share here, he never shares with the multitudes. This is to the disciples in private. And uh, it, again, it's their qu- three questions. What, when will these things take place? The sign of your coming and the end of the age. Now, this is important that he takes two chapters to answer this. To illustrate this, I brought my handy-dandy, pocket-sized, King James version of the Bible, Red Letter Edition. Now, how many of you, uh, if you're new to the Bible, you might not know what a Red Letter Edition is. A Red Letter Edition is uh, everything in the Bible is written, of course, with black ink, but then there's these places where Jesus is speaking, and it lets you know by, by writing that in red. It's not more inspired, it's just letting you know that Jesus is speaking. So when you come to chapter 24... Uh, Jesus says some things that are perplexing about the temple, and then they ask the three questions. And then what takes place, Jesus answers, and he just begins to give a two-chapter sermon. He comes to chapter 25, and he just continues answering their questions. What is the sign of his coming and the end of the age. And so you have to keep that in mind because we're going to look at some things in chapter 25 where uh, things that most of us are familiar with, but what we forget is that Jesus is answering their three questions. What's the sign of his coming and the end of the age? So we, one of the things that we highlight, and I'll only highlight one verse, it says in verse 4 of chapter 24, Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. He begins to talk about these things as he answers their question, but his first remark is, see to it that no one misleads you. The idea is, if you're getting this, you're supposed to, as a believer, this is something that's very important. It's something that you're supposed to know, and he wants to make sure that we are not misled about these things. And so that's important. So we go to chapter 25. Now as we get into chapter 25, let me just say one more time that it's important as Jesus talks about some things, he's been talking about some things on a global scale, but keep in mind as we get into this, he's answering the question, what is the sign of his coming? So you have to get that to make sure that, that uh, we, we don't miss what he's talking about. 
Also, he's going to give two parables that we're going to look at today. Remember that with parables, Jesus is communicating a main point. So you want to get the main point of what it is that he's talking about. Uh, you can, if you go too far with the parables, they, they tend to break down. So you always want to get what's the main point of this. So we're going to pick it up in verse 1. And in verse 1 of chapter 25, continuing what's the sign of his coming, he says, the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So there's a couple of things. Uh, this was written Middle Eastern culture 2,000 years ago. And so we, the, you know, we're very Western, and so it's good to unpack a couple of these things. First of all, uh, when it says the bride, the, you have the ten virgins and they go out to meet the bridegroom. The bridegroom is not marrying ten virgins. That's not what's taking place here. Uh, the, the, it says virgins, but if we were to write this in our culture, we wouldn't use the term virgins, we would use the term bridesmaids, because that's what they are. And um, the word virgins there in the original language can mean virgins, and it's translated as virgins, but what it means is an unmarried woman. However, if you're in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, before they were so liberal, uh, you would definitely be a virgin before you got married. That makes sense? There would be serious consequences. So it's just just a given. Also, um, when it says there's 10 of them, 10 was just the common number of bridesmaids in a wedding party. So this is something that they would all be very familiar with. So there were, in those days, three stages to a Jewish wedding. There was the first stage, which we would call the engagement. Now, the engagement would be where two fathers came together and uh, they decided that, you know, our kids are, are going to get married. That was called the engagement. Now, what you need to know about that, this is not a forced marriage. So these kids had grown up together. They liked each other. They didn't like each other. So when the father would say, well, what about this one over here? What about this one? If the daughter said, nah, he's such a creep. He said, okay, we won't, we won't do that. So this, when they got married, everybody was in agreement. This was not a forced marriage. Everybody agreed. Now that led to the second stage of the wedding, which would be called the betrothal. And uh, sometimes the engagement would take place when the, the children were, were somewhat young. Some, some of the girls could be engaged by the time they were five, eight, something like that. But then there came that place of the betrothal. Now that would be where they still think this is a good thing, both the guy and the girl, and they come together. And at that point, they, uh, they make promises to one another. And it would be a ceremony where they do that, and it's very much like in our day where we exchange the vows. So that would be very much the, the same thing. But what would take place is they, when they exchanged those promises, they did not come together as we would think as husband and wife. They would be legally married, but they were still separate. They didn't, there was no physical um, union at that point. What would take place is once the betrothal took place, the groom would go back to his father's house, and he would begin to build, he would add on to his father's house the room that he would be bringing his bride to, and then when that was finished, he would then come and take his bride, and everybody would be ready, and then they would go back, and then, the, then you know, the, there would be a ceremony, and um, that, you know, the rest would, would take place. It was, it was meant to be somewhat of a surprise but um, when the betrothal took place, it could never go more than a year. So that, that was, it had to be within a year. So there's a couple of things that we need to talk about just before we go any further. If you're like me, I was raised in the church. And so often when this was explained, it would go something like this. 
there's the betrothal, and then the groom goes on a far away journey. And as he's far away, he begins to build this place for his bride to be. And the bride never knows when the groom is coming, so she has to be always ready, perpetually ready for the groom to arrive. Uh, How many of you ever heard something like that? Okay, a couple of us, good. So that's kind of true, but it's it's kind of not. It's kind of not true. Because it would be very awkward to be perpetually ready, ladies. You're wearing your wedding gown and um, you're going out to milk the cows because you have to be perpetually ready. Would you say that would be awkward? Yeah, so so you'd want to have a good idea as to when this guy is coming. So there's a couple of things. First of all, Jesus is speaking to his disciples who are a bunch of Jewish guys. They get the culture. They understand exactly what he's talking about. You and I are Westerners on the other side of the planet 2,000 years later. In those days, you typically married somebody from your own town. I want to just show you how this works. Uh, If you've been with us in our study of Matthew, you'll remember this map where Jesus has conducted much of his ministry up in the northern part of Israel, and that area is called Galilee. And we talked about the Sea of Galilee. It's a large freshwater lake, and it's eight miles across, eight miles across at the widest. But I want you to notice that you have these towns that are around the Sea of Galilee, like Bethsaida, Capernaum, Magdala, Tiberias, and on the other side, the Gennesaret and all that. And so you see those towns. Now keep in mind, the Sea of Galilee is at its widest, eight miles across. So, so the part that I want you to walk away with is that you would probably marry somebody from your hometown, which is why the two dads knew each other. And the towns in that day were not like we know today. Towns in that day were somewhere between three to five acres in size. So right now, we are building our new facility on the seven acres on the other side of our buildings. That would be a really good-sized town 2,000 years ago. Does that make sense? So when the, bride, <laughs> when the bridegroom went away to his father's house, it's, it's at the most on the other side of town, it's, it's, it's not even 1,000 feet that way is the idea. So So the idea is that the bride would know pretty much exactly when the groom was going to be ready to come for her. Because, you know, they would still talk to each other through the year, and it wasn't like they were completely separated. The family still got together and all that. But being a thousand feet away at the most, she would walk by and she'd say, the walls are going up, getting close, putting a window in, getting very close. And she would know once he started putting the roof on, it was getting very close. So there would be some real clear signs that it was time for the bridegroom to come get the bride. Does that make sense? So, so nobody would be confused. It would be a surprising in the sense, is he coming at 10 o'clock in the morning? Is he coming at noon, 4 o'clock? Is it going to be an evening wedding? But it wouldn't be like, you know, is it, is it going to be next year or this year? Or is it going to be next month? No, you saw the signs. You could see. And uh, so you knew pretty much when it was going to happen. Now, this parable is going to articulate that. We'll see as we go. So, Verse 1, I'm going to pick it up again. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil. They took no oil. Underline that with them. That's going to be the dividing line. 
But the prudent took oil, took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now, when the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Now, what I want you to get out of that is they had a pretty good idea what day it was going to happen. So they've been waiting all day because this is the time, but it's getting a little bit later in the day. It's not another month, another year. They, they, they pretty much said that this is you know, the time period. Verse 6, but at midnight there was a shout, behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And of course that's reminiscent of all the passages where Jesus describes when, when he comes back. But I also want to say that at midnight, it's the same day. It's not another month or a couple of years or it's the same day. There were some real signs that they could know when it was going to happen. Verse 7, it says, then all those virgins, we would say bridesmaids, rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. Notice their lamps are going out. Now what's important there, you could have a lamp, the lamp could have a wick. You could light the wick and it would light. However, if there's no oil, it's going to go out real quick. Let me just show you a quick picture here. In those days, this would be a common lamp that they would have. You see the wick sticking out. And so again, they've lit the, the wicks, but if there's no oil on the inside, it's going to go out very, very quickly. Now, what's important is that as you were to look at these 10 women, there's nothing on the outside that you'd be able to differentiate them. Uh, nothing that you could see from the outside. Uh, the difference would be what's going on on the inside. Five will have oil, five will not. All are there waiting for the bridegroom. They're, they're all there together. So verse 9, as they begin to ask, it says, the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us and for you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Now we missed this, but... Um, Jesus is saying this to his disciples 2,000 years ago. And so when he tells the story, and and so the the five who had oil said, no, go try to buy some. It's midnight in the Middle East uh, where where towns were somewhere between three to five acres in size. You're not going to be able to find anywhere to go buy that uh, in the middle of the night. This is, for some of you who don't know, this was before Amazon. They just didn't have it at that point. So there was just, it just didn't happen. Uh, I went to college in, in, uh, in Lake Wales, Florida, and back then it's like the whole town shut down at 5 p.m. And if some of you are old enough to remember, you know, th- that's the way things were in small towns way back when. Well, that's how it was. Everything shut down. Everybody's in bed. Nobody's getting, give it, getting up to give you any oil. So they begin asking. Now, here's the point. Here's the point that we're going to find. There comes a point where it's too late. You either have the oil or you don't have the oil. And that's going to determine everything. It's, it, it, when he arrives, you have it or you don't. Verse 10, it says, and while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Now notice verse 11, later the other virgins, we'd say bridesgroom, uh, bridesmaids, also came saying, notice what they're saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. And uh, just know the wording has changed. We know who we're talking about now. Lord, Lord. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. He doesn't say I do not like you. I do not know you. 
Verse 13, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. It's not that you won't know the generation, but you won't know the day or the hour. On the outside, everything looks the same. The difference was on the inside. And the difference was this. Five had oil, five did not, and, uh, and that determined everything. So what is oil? Well, in the Bible, whenever oil is used as a symbol, it's always a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Go ahead and write that down. It's always a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Uh, one place, I, I could show you sh- several, but I'm just going to show you one. You can look it up later. It says Zechariah 4, 1 through 7. But in the Old Testament, this prophet Zechariah, he sees, he sees a, um, a vision, and in this vision there is a lampstand. We would say a menorah. And he notices something about this lampstand that it is perpetually filled from the outside, that oil is perpetually coming in so that you don't have to keep filling it. It's coming from the outside, it's perpetually filled. And uh, so the Lord says, what is this, Zechariah? And Zechariah says, well, Lord, you know. He says, I can't figure it out. And God says this as he explains the oil there in your outline. You probably wondered where this verse came from. God says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And God says in that vision, the oil that's going in is his spirit. That's what keeps it going. That's what keeps it going. So in our story, some had it, some did not. And uh, the door was shut at a certain point, and everybody is surprised. Now, Paul would say it like this there in your outline, Paul would say, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. There's this dividing line. Some will and some won't. Now, remember that Jesus is answering their questions. What is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So in this story, what we find is that of those who were there, all knew about the bridegroom. You want to write that down. They all had knowledge of the bridegroom. They were among those who were waiting, and they were certainly all there. But five had head knowledge, although they knew about the the bridegroom, but not the Spirit of God. That's what he's conveying. If Jesus is answering the question, what is the sign of his coming then all of a sudden, this passage, this passage becomes or uh, is, is aligned with every other picture or passage of his coming. So, for instance, and consistent with every other passage, we were in Matthew 24. I put that there in your outline. And Jesus is describing the sign of his coming. And he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And we spent a week talking about what it was like, but he says it will be just the same. Well, the part that we tend to miss is, if it's just the same, how many were saved through the Noah and the Ark story? Eight? Eight? Wasn't a bunch, wasn't all. Well, in Luke's gospel, Jesus would say it like this. It was The same has happened in the days of Lot. Probably one of the most fascinating, in-your-face, straightforward prophecies. He says, it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Well, how many were saved in that story that Jesus points to? Well, there's a couple of towns, but out of a couple of towns, there was three. 
There were three that were saved. In the book of Revelation, Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches. Because the Bible is a book of prophecy where he lays down the end from the beginning, Jesus there we find that he is laying out 2,000 years of church history with incredible precision. If you reverse the order of any of the churches, it makes no sense. But in their order, he lays out 2,000 years of church history. You come to the very last church. It's called the Church of Laodicean. And this is the church that's in existence just before Jesus comes back. As a matter of fact, as soon as he's done there, there's a voice saying, come up here. But at that last church, as Jesus dictates a letter to them, it's the only church that he has to remind that he is the creator. And the reason for that is that church is the only church that does not embrace him as the creator anymore. They've embraced some other process. But to that last church, notice what he says. Jesus says, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. Both would be great, by the way. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I'm rich, I become wealthy, I have need of nothing, I'm okay, you know. And he says, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Uh, The part that hits me, it says, you do not know. They thought they were fine, spiritually speaking. But they were blind spiritually, and they could no longer recognize their true spiritual condition. And Jesus says, they say, what is the sign of your coming? And every single, every single passage points to uh, saying that not everybody, there's a number who are there, but not everybody uh, is actually saved. Like the virgins, they were all there, but only five had the oil of the Holy Spirit. I don't want anybody to ever doubt their salvation. But here's what I can tell you. If right now you're going, is that me? Probably not. Because you care. But that last church that is blind, they can't see. If you're going, that's not me. Uh, It could be. But right now you might have come to the place where you can't see anymore. And my prayer for you is that your eyes are open, but each and every one of us needs to make sure that we have the oil of the Holy Spirit. We'd say that by being saved, born again, um, however you'd want to term that. There has to be that place where you say, Jesus, I can't make it without you. I need to be saved by you. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. Take me as yours. Sadly, in all pictures, most people never come to that place. They say, I'm okay. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Well, he goes on and uh, says, well, let's look at this another way when we consider the sign of his coming. Uh, Jesus is still answering the question uh, of the sign of his coming. So now he comes to the parable of the talents. And we pick it up in verse 14. He says, for it was just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them, entrusted his possessions to them. We're going to find that this one who's going away is going to be called the master, and he is going on a journey, I'm going to suggest, for about 2,000 years, and he entrusts what is his 
to those who would be his servants. So go ahead and write this down. We're going to find that the master or this man believes that it all belongs to the master. And the word entrusted there, and I'm not going to go through it, but it just means that he's given it to his servants. He is expecting them to take what he has entrusted them with to use it for his benefit, for his purpose. And we'll see how that works out. Verse 15, he says, to one he gave five talents and to another two and to another one, uh, to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. The word talent there, I've put it on your outline, is different than our understanding. The word in the original language is talenton. Our English word will come from this word. It means a weight varying in different places and times, a sum of money. So so what's important to understand, a talent was not a coin. It was a sum of money, a weight of money. And uh, so you want to write this down. The talent was a weight of money, not a coin. So what made this weight of money, this talent valuable was whether it was copper or silver or gold. But it was, it was, it was quite a bit. A talent could be up to 20 years income. You want to write that down. Up to 20 years income. So even if you had one, it was still very significant. If somebody gave you 20 years income, that would be a significant amount of money. Now, the gospel began, you know, Jesus was in, Jew, in, in, a, in, in uh, Israel, and as the gospel spread when it came to the English-speaking world, they looked at this passage where it talked about the talent, and our English word talent comes from this Greek word talenton. And uh, there on your outline, when it came to English-speaking people, we just adopted that word, And our English word there in your outline, talent, comes from this passage and came to be seen as life resources such as time, money, abilities, and authority. Specifically in that context, it was talking about money. But again, when English-speaking people became Christian and they looked at this, they said, it's everything. Everything that I have, everything that I have is something that the master has given to me and he expects me to use it for his benefit, his purpose. Verse 16, uh, it says, immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. So here's what we find. I want you to write this down. The first two believed that if the master entrusted it to them, then they could do something with what belonged to the master. They had a belief system about the master that if God had entrusted or the master had entrusted them, they were to take it and they could do something because the master had entrusted them. So again, uh, write this down. Their understanding of the master caused them to act in faith, take action, and risk for their master. It all belongs to him. He's given it to us. We want to go do something and do it for him. Verse 18, on the other hand, he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Does your Bible say money? You want to underline that. Keep in mind that in that day, talent was a sum of money. It came to be understood as other things later on. All good, all good. So um, 
interesting what we find is that this one received something from the master, but he never used what he received from the master for the master's benefit, the master's purpose. And so if Jesus is answering the question, what is the sign of his coming? This might be part of that answer. Verse 19, he says, now after a long time, again, I'm going to suggest about 2,000 years, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought him five more talents saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. And see, I've gained five more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Underline good and faithful. You are faithful with a few things and I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted me two talents. See, I've gained two more talents. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So there's a couple of things here. First of all, we're going to find that Jesus calls these two faithful and good. You want to write that down, faithful and good. Jesus doesn't call them faithful and brilliant. They're faithful and good. If he said faithful and brilliant, I'm out. The emphasis is on their faithfulness. Also important is that, and you want to write this down, Jesus praises their faithfulness, not the amount. Not the amount. So what was important was that they were faithful with what it is that God gave them, and they used it for his purpose. And then he says, enter into your reward. And he says there in your outline, I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. When the master returns, there is reward. And uh, I want to highlight that, that he says, I will put you in charge of many things. This refers to heaven. There are those who would teach you or tell you that going to heaven means that you get angel wings, you sit on a cloud, and you play a harp. There are no verses in your Bible that say that. Would anybody ever get excited about sitting on a cloud and playing a harp for all eternity? No one, no one. Yes, no hands on the back. Nobody's excited about that. In heaven, the reward is I will put you in charge of many things. The idea, all verses that point to heaven deal with leadership, oversight, administration, and I would suggest creativity, but nothing about sitting on a cloud. The voice that wants to tell you that heaven is sitting on a cloud playing a harp is another voice that doesn't want you to go to heaven, so they're going to do everything that they can do to make you not excited about heaven. And nobody gets excited about sitting on a cloud, hopefully. So verse 24, so so just know that that's the reward. Verse 24, and the one who had received the one talent came to him and said with your pen in hand, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, underline that, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, underline that, and went away and hid your talent, your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master said to him, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew that I I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have at least put my money in the bank. And upon my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Um, couple of things there. First of all, uh, write this down. Jesus is going to call the third slave, he's going to call him wicked. Just, just wicked. And you notice that this one 
in verse 24, he says, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you didn't sow. So here's my question. Is the master that we serve a hard man? You know, I read somewhere something about his yoke was easy and his burden was light. But what we find with this servant, and you want to write this down, the one that Jesus would call the wicked servant acted on a complete wrong understanding of who the master is. A complete wrong understanding of who the master is. He said, I knew you to be a hard man. Then you want to write down his wrong understanding of the master caused him to operate in fear, not faith. Fear, not faith. He says, I was afraid. So he would not step out for the master. He would not commit for the master. Uh, It was just too risky for him. The first two had an understanding, their understanding of the master. There was something about that understanding of who he was that caused them to want to immediately respond by going out and taking what it is that the master has given to them and and do something with it for the master. They had one belief system of the master. This one has a very different belief system about who the master is, and that causes him to act very, very differently. Does that make sense? The reason, the reason in the church at large Many take 100% of everything that the master has entrusted to them, be it their treasure, their finances, be it their talent, be it their time. They take 100% of it, not for the master's purpose, but they consume all of it, all of it on themselves. And the reason that they do that is because they have a belief system about who the master is. That belief system causes them to operate in fear, not faith, and it causes them to not invest, but to dig a hole and do nothing with what it is that the master has entrusted them, trusted to them. Verse 27. He says, then you ought to have put my money in the bank and upon arrival I would have received my money back with interest. It's interesting, he he wouldn't commit for the master and the master points out, not only did you not, you wouldn't even commit enough to put it in the bank to draw interest. I mean, that was the level of commitment that that there was no investment for the master's purpose. But when the master came back, here's what he offered the master, right? Write this down. He only gave excuses and blamed the master. Blamed the master saying, you know, you're a hard man. It caused me to be afraid. It's really your fault. It's really your fault. What we find interesting is that in the end, all three received what they believed about the master. So verse 26, he says, but the master said to him, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and upon my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. 
Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has more, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does not have shall be taken away. Now remember, this is when the master comes back. Throw out the worthless slave, very strong words from Jesus, to the outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, some take this and they say, um, this means that he wasn't saved, he's being tossed out. And there are those who hold that, and that, you know, out, you know, wailing and gnashing of teeth. And uh, if you go to the, the parable of the virgins, that seems to make sense. Uh, I don't hold that view. I'm not saying that view is wrong, I'm just I don't hold that view. Some, uh, I would take the view that what he's saying in the strongest of terms is that you are getting what you believe. You didn't believe enough or somehow you never examined your faith to, to do something with what it is that I've entrusted you. And so now I'm taking away, you, there is no reward. There is no reward. Whereas the two that took what he had, and there was something about what they believed about the master that said, let's go for it. Let's, let's get out there. Let's risk and take a step of faith uh, because their master is so awesome. They experienced him saying, well done, good and faithful servant. At the very least, at the very least, every one of us needs to evaluate where we are in these two stories. Have we, we're all here among those who are waiting, but have we come to that place where we said, I want that oil. I don't want to leave here today without that. Before you come, I want that. And you want to make sure that you settle that. Some will not be able to receive that as we see in Revelation. But my prayer is that the eyes are open, that we see the truth, and that we receive. Now, my hope and trust is that we all have. It's my hope and trust. But let me ask you a question. Are you the servant that has taken what the master has entrusted to you, and you are using that for his purpose? Or are you the servant who takes 100% of everything the master has entrusted you with, not using it for the purpose of the master, but consuming all of it upon yourself. Time, treasure, talent, to the place where you exclude the master. Jesus has some very strong words to say about that. Don't let that be you. And with that, I'm going to close in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we wrap this up today as you give your thoughts concerning the sign of your coming and the end of the age. And you use these two parables. Lord, it's not that we want to doubt, but we want to just check in. Make sure that we are who you've really called us to be. And Lord, we recognize that if we are those who have embraced and say we have oil in our lamps, the Holy Spirit, then the logical conclusion is that because of that, our view of you would be that we want to take what it is that you've entrusted to us and we want to use it for you. We want on that day for you to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's our desire. And so Father, for those of us today, if maybe today we realize although we're among those who are waiting, but we can't honestly say 
that we have had that experience where we've said, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me. I need you. I need you in this relationship with you. I want that oil of the Holy Spirit. We say to you today, I want that. And we invite you to come in and do your work in our lives. But Lord, maybe, maybe we're living our lives for our purpose in our way according to our agenda. And when we come to you, we're saying, Jesus, we want you to come alongside of us to help us accomplish our purpose, our goals, our desires, our dreams. But there's not really that place where we're saying, Jesus, I want to take what it is that you've given to me and I want to use it for you. Lord, don't let us leave here today without seeing the reality of that because there is no worse deception than self-deception. And you take a very, very strong stand today. God, open our eyes. Help us to go forward in faithfulness, taking what it is that you've given to us and using it for your purpose. I pray, God, that you keep each of us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.